with that, we're going to get into the Word together. We're in John chapter 13 today. Go ahead and open your Bibles. If you have a Bible, if you have a Bible app, or if you don't have uh, the Bible at all on you, no big deal. We have it on the screen uh, behind me today. But if you do have a Bible, I invite you to turn, and I'm going to turn in my Bible as well to John chapter 13. We're going to read today, we're going to look at verses 36 through uh, chapter 14, verse 11. Follow along as I read starting in John 13, verse 36. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Let's pray. Jesus, as we look at your words and as we consider the important truth that has been preserved for us here over 2,000 years that has caused millions, perhaps billions of people to come to salvation and have eternal life. God, as we consider that word today, I pray that it would have that same effect in our lives, that you would cause us to believe just as you said in this passage that we would believe in you and that we would believe in the Father who sent you and that we would have eternal life. Speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been following along, uh, you're familiar with the setting, but perhaps you haven't been here for a couple of weeks, and so let me just remind you of the setting. So we have Jesus. He's gathered together his closest followers, the 12 disciples, soon to become the 12 apostles. He's gathered them together. He's literally hours before going to the cross, hours before his arrest and his crucifixion. And he's, he's giving them some final words, and we're going to be looking at those final words over the, the next couple of chapters. He's washed their feet. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He set an example for, for them of servitude towards one another. He's commanded them to love one another. We looked at this last week, just as I have loved you, he said. But he's dropped this major, major bomb on them. He's let them know that he's leaving them. And you have to stop and think about a little bit what what that would have been like for them to hear that. Because the disciples have expectations 
of Jesus based on how they understand the Old Testament and based on some of the events that have happened. You know, the, the, the people of Israel are not a sovereign nation at this point. Here they are, God's chosen people whom a couple of thousand years before this he established as a great nation. And they're in, basically, they're, they're under the Roman Empire, subjected to their rule over what should be an, an autonomous kingdom. Yet they have all of these promises in the Old Testament that God is one day going to send a king and that that king will defeat their enemies and that that king will sit on the throne forever. And they've come to associate the fulfillment of those promises with Jesus. You remember just a few days before these events here, we have this triumphant entry into Jerusalem where all the people of Jerusalem come out and they celebrate their coming king, the one who's come to rescue them. The one who's come to set them free. And the disciples are no exception. They think, man, Jesus is here. He's, he's going to defeat the Romans. He's going to restore Israel to her glory. He's going to reestablish the kingdom. He's going to sit on the throne. And guess what? We're his closest followers. We're going to rule with him. We're in this new kingdom that Jesus is establishing. We're going to be men of authority and of power. We're going to have these positions. You even see them fighting over that a little bit before this, you know, where the disciples are fighting over well, who's going to sit at his right and who's going to sit at his left. They're picturing a king on a throne. That's where their ambition is going, that's where their expectations is set. Jesus gets up before them. He says, guys, I'm leaving. But I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. And we looked at that last week. And they don't even hear that. That command just totally does not even register. Jesus has to come back to it later in a couple of chapters. In chapter 15, he actually has to come back to this command. Because when he, when he says to them, I'm leaving, they're completely undone. We see in our passage today, three different men ask questions. Basically, they're offering objections. As quick as Jesus answers one question, somebody shouts out the next question. They're, 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 this is, I get the impression that there's a bit of chaos happening amongst them right now. Jesus is leaving. Where's he going? We just got to Jerusalem. This is where he's going to establish his kingdom. What do you mean you're going away? Where are you going? How long are you going to be there? Why don't we just come with you? This is what's going through their minds. They don't understand. They don't understand what Jesus came to do. They're thinking physical kingdom. He's thinking spiritual kingdom. And the difference between the two is causing them great distress so why does Jesus leave? Why does he leave the disciples? Well, I want to give you four things to think about as we consider that question today. If you have the handout, go ahead and get that out. Let's go ahead and fill in the first set of blanks. The first thing we need to know about this is that Jesus leaves to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus leaves to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. If we look back at, at, at verse 36, 
In verse 36, after Jesus has announced that he's leaving, the first one to, to open his mouth, not surprisingly, if you, if you know the Gospels, the first one to open his mouth is Simon Peter. He says, Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. So Peter speaks up and asks the question that everybody's, every, that's on everybody's mind. Jesus, what, where? Where are you going? We're here. We're where we're supposed to be. You're the one that brought us here. A few days before this, they didn't even want to come to Jerusalem because they knew if they came to Jerusalem, they were, they were potentially going to get arrested. But they've followed Jesus into Jerusalem. And Peter thinking, well, well maybe he's just going somewhere dangerous and he's, he's protecting us. Peter says, don't worry about that. I'll lay down my life. I'll die to follow you. <laughs> Jesus says something that probably was unbelievable to Peter. Because he's convinced of his loyalty to Jesus. Peter thinks that he'll do whatever it takes to follow Jesus. But Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? A rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. In other words, we're not, you're not even going to make it to the morning. Before tomorrow morning, before businesses begin to open and everybody goes about doing the things that they got to do. Before, we, before it's even morning, before the sun comes up, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me, not once, Peter, three times. This would have been unthinkable to Peter. There's nothing that's going to make him deny Jesus. If somebody puts a sword to his throat, he is ready to die for Jesus. But what Peter is actually going to do is he's going to demonstrate not only that, that he can't do what Jesus is about to do, but that he is the reason why Jesus must go do what he's about to do. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. So where is Jesus going? That's the question. Peter expects a geographical answer. Where are you going? You going back to Samaria? Where are you going up to Galilee? We leave in the country? Why can't we go with you? We'll just go with you. Just take us with you. But he's not going to a geographical place. Where he's going is he's going to the cross. He's going to the cross to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus accomplishes something by offering himself as a sacrifice, by giving himself over to the wrath of God on the cross. He accomplishes something that you and I cannot do for ourselves. Peter couldn't do it. Even if Peter, even if Peter had, had stayed true to his word and been willing to die for Jesus, even if they would have crucified Peter next to Jesus, that wasn't really what Jesus was going to do. What he was going to do was to take the sin of the world upon himself. Peter can't do that. You could, you could crucify a hundred billion 
human beings, and they would never accomplish what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Because he's unique. He's different than Peter. He's the sinless son of God. He's the only one worthy to to offer himself as a sacrifice. He's the only one capable of offering himself as a sacrifice in a way that will satisfy God's just wrath for our sin. Peter could have died on the cross for his own sins and it would not have atoned for his sins, let alone for yours and ours and mine. Jesus is going to do what only Jesus can go and do. He's, he, is, he has already, uh, before the foundation of the earth, agreed that he would lay down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He leaves to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus has, Jesus has set the bar. Okay, what he's accomplishing, right? We've got to back up a little bit. What he's accomplishing is reconciliation between man and God. He's restoring, that's what I mean by reconciliation. He's restoring the relationship between God and man. Why does the relationship between God and man need restored? Because we have sinned from the very beginning, the first man and woman that God created, and every man and woman that has been birthed on the earth since then has distanced ourselves from God both spiritually and physically. If you think about back in the Garden of Eden, they were spiritually, they were spiritually uh, uh, um, in unity with God. There was no sin to separate them spiritually. And physically, they actually lived in God's presence in the Garden of Eden. So, th- so spiritually and physically, they were perfectly unified with him. Sin happened, and it, and it, and it put... Um, a distance between God and us, both spiritually and physically. And so Jesus comes and he says, if, if you want to be with the Father, then it's simple. You just have to be like him. In order for man to be reconciled to God, we just simply have to be like him in his moral purity. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's what Jesus said. So that's the standard. The problem is, is not one of us can even come close to living up to that standard. We fail miserably in in living up to the standard that Jesus has set for being in relationship with our God and with our Creator. Peter proves that. Peter, his, his most loyal follower will deny him three times in a matter of hours. And you and I would have done the same thing. We don't live up to the standard set for us by a holy God. Therefore, what Jesus does is he comes and he lives that life. He lives the perfect life that God requires of you and I. He lives a sinless life. He lives a a morally pure and perfect life. And so he satisfies and he meets a standard that God requires of us. But then there's a problem. Because what God, requi- but what God requires is not just that, that moral perfection, but we already have sin. We have already created a debt before God that must be paid. And so Jesus goes to the cross, having lived a perfect life, he goes to the cross and he allows the punishment for sin to come upon himself. 
And so he does both. He lives the righteous life that God requires of us, and he dies the just death that is required because of our sin. In other words, Jesus leaves to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Peter's like, well, let me come with you. Nah, man, you can't come. You can't do this. There's only one person who can do this, and it's Jesus. You can, you can no more do what I'm about to do than you can walk to the moon. Can't be done. It can only be done by one person, and that's the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so he must leave them. He must leave them behind. Jesus leaves to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. The second thing on the handout. Jesus promises to return to take us to where he is going. He leaves, but he then promises to return to take us to where he is going. Remember what he said, said to Peter? I mean, I'm still in the last passage. But he said to Peter, will you truly lay down your life? I'm sorry, that's not the right verse. Verse 36. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And it's possible there's a double meaning here. Because on one hand, G Peter will follow Jesus in where he's going in the sense of Jesus is going to reconcile man to God and Peter will experience that later. So perhaps that's what he means by you will follow me later. But also there may be another meaning because Christian history tells us that Peter was actually died a death of crucifixion later on in his life for preaching the gospel. And so, so it's possible that Jesus is saying both. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to follow me later because I'm going to come and I'm going to take you where I'm going. You're going to follow me in being in the presence of God. But you're so eager to die for me, guess what? You'll have your opportunity. And Peter dies a martyr's death. The historical tradition tells us he considered himself unworthy to die in the same manner of his Lord and so he requested and had it granted that he was crucified upside down. Peter couldn't go with Jesus this time, but he would later. But the point here is that Jesus promises to return to take us to where he is going. If we look at the beginning of chapter 14, I'm just going to read the first three verses. Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If not, I, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. He promises to return and to take us where he is going. He says, that, he says, the first thing he says here in, in, in this passage, don't let your hearts be troubled. I know what I'm saying is, is making you uncomfortable. I know what I'm saying is creating a little bit of a panic. I know this, this sounds bad that Jesus is leaving, but don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus makes this promise. He's not going away forever. In fact, his going away is the best thing that could happen to the disciples at this point, and it's the best thing that could happen for us. 
Next week, we're going to look at, at some of the things that Jesus promises, uh, mostly as a result of his going away. And so make sure that you're here for that, because Jesus' leaving is good news. It's good news. It's causing them to be troubled now, but it's good news. He says it this way, in my father's house are many rooms. There's a lot of thought that goes into what this means. Are we all going to live in one big house together in heaven? Hope not. I really don't want to live with some of the people that I think are going to be there. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) You know, some translations say that he's gone to prepare a mansion. That wasn't a great translation. It's, It's better understood here as rooms. I don't think the point is the physical structure that we will dwell in for eternity. I don't think that's the point. The point is that he's reconciling us to God. The point is that we will be with him forever. And he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. Would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and I and prepare a place for you, I come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Where is he taking us? To him. He's taking us to him. He's taking us to, to his presence. Where is heaven? Wherever Jesus is. It's not so much a place, though, though I mean, I think we are right to understand it as a place. We are f- both physical and spiritual beings, and God created us that way, and there will be physical dimensions to our existence and eternity, of course. But it's not so much the place, and it's not so much the other people that makes it paradise. It's his presence. It's his presence. I think rightfully, as believers, we look forward to heaven as a time of being reunited with loved ones who believed in Christ and have died before us. I think that's proper. Certainly, our our relationships with one another are an important part of that. But first and foremost, the the great thing about eternity is that Jesus is going to be there. That's, that's what makes it heaven. If he, if, he were, if he were to remove his presence, it would be hell. No matter who's there, and no matter what kind of house you live in, and no matter what the streets are made of, it's his presence. So Jesus promises to return and to take us to where he is going. And in a sense, he promises to bring us to himself. I will come again and take you to myself. So that where I am, you may be also. That's reconciliation. That's restoring us into a right relationship with God, physically and spiritually. That physically we are in his presence. That spiritually there's, there's nothing between us because he has made atonement. He has, he has paid the price for our sins. Third, Jesus himself is the way to where he is going. The only way. 
Jesus leaves us, let's just recap real quick. Jesus leaves us to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus promises to return to take us to where he is going. And then the next thing on the handout is this. Jesus himself is the way to where he's going. He's not just the destination. He is the way. The only way. This is good, this is good news. Let's look at this uh, in verses 4 through 6. Jesus says, you know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas said. So here's the second disciple to speak up. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? That makes sense. He won't even tell them where he's going. And now he's saying, hey, you know the way. You understand the difficulty of of what he's asking them to process. So he responds. It says, Jesus told them, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Where are you going? Where are we going? To Jesus. How do we get there? Through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is, the, he is our destination, and he is the way to get there. Everybody has people in their lives that are uh, directionally challenged, right? You, you, you may be that person. You may be sitting next to that person. They, you're like, hey, meet me at such and such. Well, I'm not sure where that's at. And you, there's like three steps. You're like, go here, turn right, then turn left, and then another mountain. You're there. It doesn't matter how detailed of a description you give them. They're not getting there, huh? Well, I've got good news. The way to heaven, the way to eternal life, If you were to look at a map and it said, here's where you're at now and here's where you want to be, the directions are super simple. It just says Jesus. How do we get from where we're at? How do we get from this natural state that we're born into of separation from God? Are there all all these complicated steps and all of these things? And the first thing you need to do is this, and the next thing you need to do is that. And then if you do this, this, and this every day for for the rest of your life, then then you're you're at least hopeful that you're going to end up there. The, The way is Jesus. He himself is the way to where he is going. And here's the thing that makes hope probably all of us a little uncomfortable, but some of us a lot uncomfortable, he's the only way. When in, I know how that sounds, I think, to our world, to our culture, to say that, you know, we have the way, because it comes across as arrogance when you try to explain this to somebody else. Well, I know the, I know the way to eternal life, and the only way is through Jesus. You're saying, so you're the only one that's right. I'm not saying that. Jesus says that. And he has that authority. In fact, if he is the destination, then the logical conclusion is that he can be the only way. That he could be the only way to not, not just eternal life, but even this cultural concept of heaven. It can't be something it can't be something that we dictate and define. It has to be something that's revealed. And that is what God has done. He has revealed it. 
and he's told us how to get there. He has prescribed only one way, Jesus himself. Why? Why is he the only way? Because he's the only one who died for our sins. The only way, if, if he's right, and you have to evaluate that. Personally, I've evaluated that. I've, I've considered the validity of what Jesus is saying, and I'm utterly convinced that it's true. But if, if he's saying what it takes to be with God, that's just the way I'm going to, the language I'm going to use to say to get to heaven. If what it takes is to be with God, is to be like God, the standard is his moral perfection, and none of us can possibly do that, then, then he, he steps in and he says, but since you can't do that, let me show you what grace is. Let me show you what mercy and kindness is. I will step in and do it for you, and then I will apply it to you when you believe. That's, that's what he says. So if he's right about the way to get there being you must be like him, then he's the only one that offers us that. That's why he's the only way. That's why no one else can come to the Father except through the Son. Because there's nobody else that can do that. Everybody else is trying to walk to the moon. Can't be done. And the thing about walking to the moon is the harder you try, the further you get away from it. I'm, if I walk across the stage, I'm no closer to the moon. And if I walk over to this side, I'm no closer to the moon. <laughs> I'm not getting there. And so it is with us trying to work our way to God. No matter how hard we try, we don't get any closer. There's nothing that we can do on our own that brings us closer to him spiritually or physically. But Jesus did it for us. He did it on our behalf. He, he lived the perfect life and then he died a death on the cross to atone for our sin. But he did not stay dead. On the third day, he rose from the grave so that he could give eternal life. Jesus himself is the way to where he's going and he's the only way. He's the only way we can get there. Lastly, let's look at the fourth thing. If Jesus leaves to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and if he promises to return to take us to where he is going, and if he himself is the way to where he's going, the only way, then, then how, do we, how do we get there? How do we get where Jesus is saying to go? These are the questions that come up. Peter starts with, well, where are you going and why can't I come? Thomas follows up with, after Jesus says, you know the way, we don't know the way. And Jesus says, I'm the way. You're talking to him. You're looking at him. Then we see in verse 7, Jesus says, If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He's not making them feel any better. He just keeps saying things that confuse them. And so they just keep asking questions. Philip is the next one to ask the question. It says in verse 8, Lord, said Philip, Show us the Father. That's enough for us. Jesus is like, you've seen the Father. And they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? We haven't seen the Father. We've just seen you. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So Jesus is, he's been, he's been setting this up. This isn't the first time he's talked about the Father being in him and he and the Father being one. Uh, but, but now he, he's, he's, he's taking the ball across the goal line here. He wants to bring this home. He brings them to this point where they either have to accept or reject what he's saying. He just looks them in the eye and says, you say you haven't seen the Father, yet you're looking right at me. Remember what John says in in chapter 1 in his prologue to his gospel? He says, no one has seen God, but, but Jesus has made him known. And now Jesus is is calling his disciples to respond to that. He's calling them to believe. That's the theme of John's gospel. Remember his his purpose statement in John chapter 20 verse 30 is that Jesus did all of these works and these signs. And John organizes his gospel in such a cool way. He shows us these seven miraculous signs. But he says Jesus did all so many more signs than this. But these these I, I, I show you so that you will believe. And that by believing in him you will have eternal life. And so Jesus is inviting them to believe. He's inviting them to embrace this truth that he and the Father are one. You're separated from God. What's worse than that, you can't get to where he's at. So I'm leaving to do it for you. And then I'll come back so that you may be where I am. So that you can be reconciled back to God. Now, spiritually, but eventually even physically, to physically be with him. Revelation chapter 21, that God's dwelling place will be with man. There'll be no more death and he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. We'll be with him physically as he offers us to be with him spiritually now. But it starts with believing. It starts with him embracing that, that what Jesus is saying here is the truth. Show us the Father, and that'll be enough. Philip, I've been with you all this time, and you still don't see. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. God has made himself known. He has revealed to humankind everything that is necessary for salvation, everything that is necessary for eternal life with him. He did, he did this through sending his son to come and to die on the cross, to walk to the moon for us, to do the thing that we can't do for ourselves. And he promises to come and to bring us back together with God. But he's the only way. And so he, he says you must believe Whatever, 
you know, he gives them options. Whatever it is that convinces you, my words or my works. It, if, believe what I say, and if you don't believe what I say, at least believe because of what I've done. He's, he's shown them miraculous things. For goodness sakes, he, he rose a guy from the dead. He brought a dead man back to life. He was healing diseases and sicknesses. He's walking on water. He caused a storm to cease by speaking to it. He spoke to nature and it obeyed him. What more do you need to see? Now is the time to believe. Show us the Father. I've been showing you the Father. For almost three years I've been showing you the Father. You've been talking to him. You've been walking with him. He's here with you because he is in me and I am in him and we are one. Believe and you'll have eternal life. Believe. So the natural question that we have to ask ourselves, that I have to ask you, is do you believe? Do you believe what Jesus is saying about himself? Do you believe that what he says is true? That we, we need him to get to heaven. That we need him to be reconciled back to God. That we need him to be right with our creator. Do you believe? If you do, then it's time to put your faith and trust in what he's done for you. And it's time to take, take a stand and say, I believe in Jesus and he is my savior you know, during the first service this morning, we had nine people get baptized. Nine people publicly declaring their faith. This room was packed with witnesses. And they, they stood up here and they publicly, before all of those people, declared that they believe. That they believe in Jesus. That he is their savior. And they committed themselves to following him. But that was in the nine o'clock service. How about now? Do you believe? Do you believe what Jesus did for you?